You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey there, this is Ava DuVernay, creator of Queen Sugar on OWN, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm Dee Watkins, New York Times bestselling author of The Cook-Up and The B-Side. You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, what up, y'all? This is Jenny Ellis from HBO's Insecure, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. What's up, y'all? It's producer Will Packer, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Keep it locked right here. Favorites, this is Lisa Simpson, and you are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Pay attention. <laughs> Five, six, seven, eight. Holla, boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends everyone from sleazy men. Born apologize for spitting Shonda rhymes. tuning in to episode 153 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Overlord, Black Panther Chat, and Sanaa Lathan. Three fantastic segments. In our first segment, we interview the lead star of the film Overlord that just premiered this past weekend, Javon Adepo. He has a one-on-one interview with Janita. In our second interview, I had the pleasure of sitting down and speaking with award-winning journalist Jesse J. Holland. He is the author of the new book, Black Panther, Who is the Black Panther? And in our third segment, we save the best for last. Actress Sanaa Lathan chats to Black Girl Nerds about her project, Napoli Ever After, which you can currently find on Netflix. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this fun-filled episode, 153 BGN Podcast, Overlord, Black Panther Chat, and Sanaa Lathan. Giovanna Depo is best known for playing Michael Murphy in the HBO television series, The Leftovers, and for his role as Corey Maxson in the film adaptation of August Wilson's play, Fences. You can currently see him in the new J.J. Abrams produced film, Overlord, where he plays the character of Boyce. Hello. Hi. Thank you for making time to speak with us. Of course, of course. I got to see the movie um, over the weekend, and it was really great. Uh, I had to say, when, when they told me that my I was going to be screening a movie about um, Nazis and zombies and monsters, I really was thinking of a Sharknado type of thing. But this, was, <laughs> <laughs> this movie was, I mean, it was really good and really well put together. Um and your your character, I loved Boyce, and I loved the way that that he that he was shaped and developed. 
So, and, you know, I was wondering, I, one of the first things I wanted to ask you was, um, how familiar were you with the whole horror zombie monster, you know, genre, the lore and, and everything? Are you, I mean, are you a fan or did you have to do some research before you kind of jumped into this? I think um, the, the drama that this has kind of fallen into, just being involved with horror mixed with like drama and everything, it wasn't something that I necessarily prepared for. I just wanted to just focus, you know, specifically on the character that I was playing and how he would be, I guess, navigating through this world that he finds himself in. And I think you did very well. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about what the develop the, the character, what was, what, what was the, the, the mindset that you, you kind of went into uh, for, for playing him? I mean, he, we, we saw that he was, you know, kind of, you know, new, fresh to all this. And, you know, he was really, he, he has this huge heart and he was really not, this was not the place for voice. <laughs> so how did you kind of, you know, <laughs> I mean, how did you kind of, you know, uh, you know, see this character and, you know, that build that whole, um, get yourself prepared for, for him and dealing with him being him. Well, I think, I think I really am just naturally drawn and I find a really strong interest in playing, uh, underdogs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just people in general who are just uh, just sent, uh, set out on just trying to prove their worth to the people around them. So I think that was like the initial thing that really, you know, interest, you know, brought interest to me about Boyce and playing Boyce was that he's a young man who's incredibly capable of doing, you know, great things in his life. But before he can prove it to anyone else, he has to prove it to himself. So just me trying to play a character who's not naive, but just incredibly open to everything that he experiences he experiences and you know tries to adapt to is just I, I guess just the through lines that I tried to maintain while while playing voice. And, and yeah, and, and it came through, it really, really came through. I think the complexity of that character um actually keeps us, you know, really with him and, and following him and concerned for him. Um yeah, I, I was really concerned for him. You you interact a lot with these, you know, kind of monstrous things. So <laughs> did you? <laughs> so so was it was it a lot of um, interacting with green screen, or was it were, were these people, you know, like in full makeup, and you're like having to deal with this? And and did you have nightmares afterwards? Or <laughs> um, is my follow up well, question? I think, <laughs> I think that I think that's one of the 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 great things about this film is that. Um, if we absolutely needed a certain effect that we weren't able to, you know, do on the day, then of course you're dealing with green screen. But I would, I would, I think it's safe to say majority, majority of the, um, of like the monsters and the, the effects that you were seeing mm-hmm. were practical, you know, like the, wow. you know, the, the traditional, traditional, you know, VFX mm-hmm. guys. We had a great team out there and they did their best to make sure that whatever we had and whatever we were dealing with, like the, superhumans or whatever, you know, they're classified as, um, we were dealing with, you know, people in prosthetics. And so you really have to deal with that in the moment. So when you're running and when you're getting, you know, pushed into the wall and Mm -hmm. fighting these things, you're actually fighting the things, you know, I think that just helped all of our performances. It was really, you know, kind of an advantage of not having to play too much with the green screen. We were able to have the real thing in front of us. Oh, you know, wow. bleeding and drooling on us in, in real time. <laughs> so, so it got disgusting then for a little while, huh? Very disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so the stunts, I mean, you you got thrown around pretty good. I mean, did you, were that, was that all you? Did you have a double? Um, 
I would like to take I would like to take credit for all of the stunts, but I'm not able to. This is my heart won't let me. I had a we had an incredible stunt team. Um, Jill McLaren, she uh, she was our stunt coordinator. She had a great group of guys out there who just really just really assisted us in first making us feel comfortable with the stunts that we were doing. Mm-hmm. And if it was something that was just out of this world, where you know, because I mean, just just to be safe, you know, from a safety standpoint, we couldn't do everything. But oh, yeah. if anything was to go wrong, you know, then you would lose us for filming for you know for an X amount of days. So. I would like to say majority of the stuff I did myself, but I had a great my my son double Karanja York, um, mm-hmm. who's who's out in England. He was like basically my best friend out there. You know what I mean? Okay. I mean it's all about making you feel comfortable about what you're doing. He made sure that I felt good about what I had to do beforehand. And if it was something that was too much of a liability, you know, he would step in and he would deliver his performances like a pro. Good. Um, so, so which one of you jumped out of the plane, or did you, was there any jumping out of a plane? Uh, something like that, absolutely. Something like and, that. And everyone, <laughs> and every, and everyone who, oh, really? And everyone who did that, and everyone who who you saw do it on the show, did it on the day when we showed it. Oh I don't wow! Think any other doubles did it? Wow, was it your first time? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like just a, for the sake of being completely transparent. It was like a race. A mm-hmm. plane rig, mm-hmm. but it was suspended in the air. It was suspended in the air, and we had to, you know, we had like lines and stuff, and had to jump out of jump out of the, the plane rig. Yeah, so there's some heights. That's great. Um, really, really was really impressed with um, not only just the the cinema, the the you know, just the the way that the, the, your character was built in, in there is just the 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 history. I mean, you guys. This, this film really um, paid attention and really respected the history of D-Day and World War II and something that, you know, people know. I mean, I mean, Americans are they just kind of really know World War II history. And so um, was that something that you had to that they had you kind of become well versed on is the history of the do you have to do some homework? Well, which are, um, we had to do a bit of homework. I think, you know, it's, it's very clear that that um, this film takes uh, some some creative uh, liberties. Of course, yeah. Simply because, you know, during, you know, during that time, you know, uh, we, we didn't have a, an integrated military at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. You, know, black, you know, black, basically black folks weren't allowed to fight together with, with, uh, with white people. So, but what was, what was important that I had to understand when I got the part was that we weren't trying to create a, a direct, you know, historical, account of the second world war you know mm-hmm. what i mean mm-hmm. you know it's we have projects that are out there already that have done that you know yeah. we have the saver private lines and we have the um you know we have the band of brothers and things of that sort you know bad robot and paramount have been working really hard developing a story that takes place in a historical setting but it's not a direct retelling mm-hmm. it's just a reimagined time and it's purely about these, you know, specific characters who are going through these circumstances and then they just basically have the rug pulled from under them. So we based everything in as much realism and, you know, historical accuracy as we could as far as, you know, the company names and, and you know, the uh, the patches that the uh, 101st Airborne, you know, the patches that they wore and everything like that. Everything like that is, is exact as it should be. But as far as the characters, these are, you know, fictional characters that are, you know, navigating through a very real moment in American history. 
Um, and, and I think that's where it kind of, kind of comes through. Actually, during the screening, I was sitting next to a history buff, buff who was uh, kind of looking really hard at the patches. So um, I think you guys kind of got them really, really good. Or I mean, he seemed kind of satisfied with them. So um, so you did a really oh, good job. With them. <laughs> um, but but I'm glad you said something about the diversity um, of it because I was going to ask. I, that was going to be one of my questions: is about you know making the center of this film. Uh, an African-American soldier in World War II, was that something that was initially part of the, the, the movie or is that something that kind of came along when you, um, you, when you won the part or, or do you know? No, I don't think, I, I don't think it was, an, I don't think it was like a direct, in, you know, intention, you know, starting out. I think when the script was written, it was, you know, it was just characters were written and they wanted, and this is coming in the, you know, from what I assume, mm-hmm. they just wanted the person who fit the essence of the character best. I don't think it had anything to do with race or creed mm-hmm. or or anything like that. It just came down to we have a group of soldiers who are going through, you know, these circumstances. We just want the people that we feel fit the essence of these roles best. And we don't want to necessarily have it be contingent on, you know, race. So I think that's where that came into it because I was more concerned about it when it came time, you know, to audition and ultimately get the part, then, you know, then the creatives were. They were like, look, you know, we want the actor that we feel is best to play voice. Mm-hmm. You could play, you know, the sincerity that he needs and, the, you know, the, uh, I guess, basically just the, the openness that he needs to have because he has the responsibility of being the eyes for the audience. You mm-hmm. know, the perspective that you're seeing the movie is through his eyes. So they want, they were, I guess, you know, I'd like to assume they wanted someone who could fit that bill and, and play it, you know, honestly. And that's what I tried to do. Do you think, I think that goes for the rest of the cast as well? It, yeah, it came Like I said, the characters are really well developed. I really like that. So I think it came through. Um, do you think making voice a, a black soldier at that time, do you think that kind of amplified the, the effect that he had, you know, being in this, this new nation and, and having to deal with all with everything that was going on on top of all the, you know, you know, the, what was happening in America at that time um, with black men and I, what they had to go through. Yeah. I think that that's something that voice, that voice kept into consideration with what he was doing. I think that it may have added, and this is me speaking as a character. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it may have added to his fuel or added to his, you know, his personal flyer, you know, when it came to, him wanting so desperately to prove himself mm-hmm. because I think if anything, if we were entertaining that particular, you know, conversation, which we really didn't touch much upon in the film, but if it was, if we were to go down that road, I think that, you know, this would be like a, a great step forward in proving that, you know, at that time when we weren't seen as formidable soldiers, this would have proven like, you know, we can fight along with our, you know, our brothers, we can fight, as Americans altogether. I would like to think that voice considered that for sure. Yeah. And, and, and I think so too. Um, so coming out from this, some, do you see voice doing this again in a sequel? I know there's not been talks, but um, do you see him kind of going through the war and, you know, infiltrating more monster <laughs> laughs? Um, I think, I think there's, <laughs> I think there's always a possibility. I, I, I'm, I know that the, um, that the cast is incredibly open to that idea, but it's one of those things where 
You have to wait and see. I think that they were brilliant in the way that they wrote it, that it is, it works very well as a standalone film. Mm-hmm. But if they decided, if they decided to push the envelope and, and continue to build upon the story, you know, there's places to go from that as well. So we're in a very, you know, advantageous position with that. And yeah, and, and I, I think that, you know, just kind of having it there and just walking away from it is, um, and like you said, it's, it's a good standalone film. It's really, really good. Um, I, I, I like, again, I say I'm really shocked that I like it so much um, because I walked in just kind of really not knowing what to expect. And I want to go back to when you saw this part. What did you think of this part when you saw that it was going to be monsters and, and you know, the the history of World War II and all that kind of rolled in? Were you like, yeah, let's do this? Or like, I don't know, let's try this out. <laughs> Were you kind of hesitant? Or? No, I definitely, I, I, not at all. There was zero hesitation in my you know, in my mind when I first got the script, just because, you know, you always want to jump at the opportunity to work with great filmmakers, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, I had, I had a previous relationship with Paramount and I, you know, I, I was very familiar with Bad Robot's work and J.J. Abrams' work and, you know, Mark Smith and Billy Ray, who both have great resumes, you know, as brilliant writers. Yeah. I wanted an opportunity to work with them on something that was so specific and so different. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 one of the things that, you know, as an actor, when you get into the business, if, if the opportunity arises for you to work with high level filmmakers, you know, mm-hmm. you jump at it and you do it. So I, there was no hesitation on my part at all. I was ready to go. Yeah, and and, and I, I'm so glad that you um, that you did and you made this film and um, and just um, a horror film with black guy, you know, kind of saves the day. It's kind of <laughs> it's still refreshing in 2018. Um, so, um, and, and then having you just, <laughs> um, and, and so, um, having to go from this where this, I mean, and you did a spectacular job, but it's still, you know, a horror film and there's monsters to some of the other projects that you went, that, that, that you're doing. Um, I, was it kind of a transition or, you know, was it, was it kind of easy to do, um, kind of putting this all behind you? It's always, it's always a bit of a task. It's not a, crazy daunting task to transition um you just it's just good I, I mean i like i like to take breaks when i can just to kind of like you said decompress and mm-hmm. before i jump into the next thing and I, I think i've been able to do that i've been able to space my schedule out enough that i could rest and and recoup and recharge i guess and go back in and just try to do my best work i've been okay so i've been kind of struggling with how to describe this to people um, this movie. So I was wondering if you could kind of help me with that. So when you tell people about Overlord, what do you say? Mm-hmm. Elevator pitch. Well, I, the the main thing that I say is that it's just it's a, a, an adventure film. And, you know, it's it's. I would say there's somebody that I spoke to that like said it really well. It was almost like Favorite Private Ryan meets Indiana Jones. Because it's very much, it's very much a film. It's very much a film that's very, that's about, that's about the adventure, you know. Uh huh. Because uh-huh. whereas when you have a favorite private, private line that's purely, you know, historical, and you're having, you know, you're going through battles, and it's just the battle. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like we have a bit of all of that. We have the battles, you know. We have the journey of getting to the battlefield and and meeting different characters and. You know, the stakes are, are embedded because you're meeting the characters and you're going through the journey with them up until when it's time for them to, to act and go through 
you know, and go to war. So I'd like to say it's just a, it's an incredible action adventure horror film. I like that. I like that. Well, thank you so much for giving me your time and this great conversation and for the great film. Um, And um, we're going to be watching out for you and your other projects that you've got coming up. So I'm looking forward to it and I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That was Javon Adepo talking about the new film Overlord, which is currently in theaters. Now, before we get to our next segment, I wanted to briefly talk to you about a product called ModCloth. As you know, fall is in full swing, and if you're not already curled up in a sweater, they have got you covered with cozy essentials and cute knits that will not quit. ModCloth has tons of stylish outerwear that's sure to make an impression, and ModCloth believes fashion should celebrate all women. That's why they offer a full range of sizes from extra, extra small to 4X. So I checked out their website and they have my full attention. And these guys, they walk the walk. As soon as you go to their website, the models are in all different sizes. You've got plus size models, you've got thinner models. So women of all different shapes and sizes can check out their clothes. And guess what's coming up, guys? It's the holidays. So right now you can get some really cool Christmas sweaters, you know, the ugly Christmas sweaters that you wear at your company party. And you can get really cute stocking stuffers like socks or gingerbread printed leggings. I mean, this place has a whole bunch of selections for you to choose from. So why don't you check it out? For our listeners of Black Girl Nerds, we're going to give you 15% off of your purchase of $100 or more. You go to modcloth.com, that's M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H.com, and enter the code NERDS at the checkout. M-O-D-C-L-O-T-H.com, enter the code NERDS, and you get 15% off your purchase of $100 or more. Now, this offer is valid for one-time use only, and it expires on February 2nd of 2019. So go to modcloth.com, enter the code NERDS, get 15% off of your purchase of 100 or more, and you can get some really cool stuff for Christmas and save some money along the way. Check out modcloth.com, enter the code NERDS for your discounted 15% purchase of 100 or more. Now back to our next segment with Jesse J. Holland. Jesse J. Holland is an award-winning journalist and author of Black Panther, Who is the Black Panther? The book Marvel Entertainment commissioned for the hit film. In this novel, Holland retells the origin story of the original Black Panther, updated for the new century. Holland is also the author of Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Finn's Story and The Invisibles, the untold story of African-American slaves in the White House. The latter was honored at the Independent Publisher Book Awards and by Smithsonian.com. Holland is also a race and ethnicity writer for the Associated Press, as well as a former White House Supreme Court and congressional reporter. You guys, we love talking about comic books here on our podcast, and I'm really excited to speak with one of our guests who is a comic book aficionado and has written some really cool 
nerdy, geeky content that I think you guys are going to be excited about. I have on the episode Jesse J. Holland. He is an award-winning journalist and author of the first Marvel Commission novel featuring the comic book Black Superhero, who we all know and love, Black Panther. Jesse, thank you so much for coming on the BGM podcast. No, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. <laughs> well, yeah, we were, listen, it's all about Black Panther and T'Challa, right? Like 2018, I feel like is the year of Black Panther with such an epic film that was released that broke groundbreaking box office numbers. And you get the pleasure of writing about him in your uh, latest work, Black Panther, who is the Black Panther. So can you share with our listeners who may not be familiar with this project yet what that's all about? Uh, Well, Marvel came to me a couple of years ago and told me that there would be a Black Panther movie coming out in 2018. But the problem was that outside of the comic book area, there were a few people who knew uh, much about the Black Panther. I mean, comic book fans, we've known who he, who the Black Panther is for years. But outside of that area, there, there, there are people who knew the Black Panther existed, but they didn't exactly know who T'Challa was, what Wakanda was, Vibranium, the whole deal. So Marvel came to me and asked me to go back and take the original uh, 1966 origin of the Panther as written by uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and the 2005 revamp of that origin that was done by Reginald Hudlin. Uh-huh. Yep. Them together in one novel, a prose novel. So it would be out when the movie came out. And so when people ask literally who is the Black Panther, we could say, well, you know, there's a book that asks, that answers that very question. So I ended up being the author of Black Panther, who is the Black Panther. So it was a great project. I'm very proud of it. And it seems to have gotten pretty good reception. That's amazing. So how deep does this book go into T'Challa's history? Because there's a lot of rich history and, you know, starting from Kirby run and then there's like the McDougal run and then obviously the Hudlin run where we get the introduction. Oh, yeah. And then also Christopher Priest run right. where we get the introduction of the Dora Milaje in the Priest run. And then in the Hudlin run, that's when we get introduced to T'Challa getting married to Storm. Um, how much of this history is packed into into your work here? Well, I stick pretty close to what Reginald Hudlin did in his run because that's the origin most people are familiar with now. Um, the original, but I make sure I, I flavor it with a little bit of what Stanley and Jack Kirby did back in 1966. Right. Well, well, and let me admit this. All those runs we were just talking about, the Christopher Priest run, the Reginald Hudlin run, the Don McGregor run. All, I read all of those the first time around. So right. all of those storylines, I tried to get a little flavor of all of those different storylines in this revamped origin. Now, I will tell you that if you read uh, Reginald Hudlin's Who is the Black Panther run, his first four, four or five issues of it, you'll see a lot of similarities to what I did because, frankly, that's the best rewriting of the Panther's origin that's out there. But I made sure that it, that I threw in a few surprises for people who read that original origin. So you're not just rereading, reading in prose a comic book. You're reading a retelling of that story from 2005 that's been updated for 2017. Because just think about how much the world's changed between 2005 and now. And, of course, the origin has to change with it. So I take that original origin from 1966 
uh, what the what Reginald Hudlin, the great work he did in 2005, and I update it and change it for 2017, 2018, so that it feels like it's happening today. And like I said, it, it was this is like a dream come true for me to be able to work on a character like the Panther, and I think it came out pretty well. That's awesome, and I, I think I made a bit of a mistake at the beginning. I said McDougal McGregor. Um, run of Black Panther. So uh, let me understand. You said that your favorite run is the Hudlin run. Oh, is that by far my favorite run? Was the, okay. the, uh, I feel run. like we're going to debate a little bit here. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, at that same time that you get that first Black Panther um, a motion comic book on BET, so it, that was right. for me that Black okay. Panther really started taking off. You know, it's interesting. My first introduction to Black Panther was the Hudlin run. And I was like you, I was like, this is the best run of Black Panther. But then I started to, you know, go a little bit further back and dive deep into T'Challa's history. And then I read the Christopher Priest run, which in my opinion, I feel like is the best run of Black Panther. uh, I mean, really for me, the classic first run of Black Panther that really sticks in my head and I still reread to this day is the Don uh-huh. McGregor Marvel Comics Presents Panther's Rage Run. <laughs> where the Panther is in South Africa. Is, is in, and yeah. it just, it's just that you, you, it's hard to beat that. But to me, the for me, I, I guess I should say the mo- most influential run is the Red uh-huh. No run for me. But all of, all of this work is, is, just, is just fabulous. That's true. That's very, very true. Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the McGregor run because I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I had actually interviewed ta Coates a while back when he first started writing for Black Panther. And we chatted briefly about the different runs. And what was pretty prolific and interesting about the McGregor run of Black Panther is um, there's a run called Jungle Action Comics yeah. under that umbrella. And he did a storyline where T'Challa fights the KKK. Right. And I don't know you read that run? And, and if so, what were your opinions on T'Challa tackling these racial issues? Well, I mean, I actually have, I bought the collected edition of that run and it's sitting right in my bedroom right now and sitting there for like the last year. And I read it over and over because, I mean, Don McGregor was telling stories that you wouldn't even expect back in those days. I mean, I mean, how, how many comic book uh, writers had the courage to portray the clan, mm-hmm. to portray the clan in comic book form, and have them actually be the bad guys that they were. So yeah. that, just as a writer, that was an incredible chance he was taking. Not only just portraying the clan, but telling a really good story with it. So I mean, I think that I, I think that that is one of the classic uh, reasons why the Panther exists is that you can actually tell stories like that. And this is this for me. That's where that's why the Panther is such a great character, because you can tell stories with the Klan. From the Panther is really an outsider in America. You can go in and explain these things that are going on in the United States, and use this character to get a fresh look at things that might be ordinary for Americans. So that to me, that run is just absolutely fabulous. And I, I mean, you know, if, as a writer, that's the kind of writing that you aspire to. You read something like that and you say, I wish I could write like that. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, you as a writer, you cover not only, obviously, comic books and things that are part of our geek subculture, but you also cover politics as well. And I was curious to know what your thoughts were about 
politics and comic books and how the infusion of political issues like fighting the KKK or most recently when Captain America was a Nazi and, you know, then he turned back to being Captain America again. What what are your thoughts about when comic book writers infuse politics with this fictional medium? Well, the the best fiction always reflects the door, reflects what we see outside the window. So for a lot of us, what we're paying attention to is politics, because that's like story number one in the world right now is is politics. So the best writing you can do reflects the world that's around you. So, I mean, I think as a writer, uh, if I want people to pay attention to what I'm writing, they need to recognize the world that I'm writing in. So I always try to make sure that I reflect a little bit of the world that's outside my window when I'm when I'm writing, and some and frankly, sometimes it seeps in without me even noticing it. Um, I will tell you that when I finished the, uh, the the novel, Who Is the Black Panther, I got a note back from my editor saying, "I really liked how you infused politics into the story," and you know, <laughs> I really hadn't intended to do that. <laughs> but I live here in Washington D.C. and I work here. I work as a journalist, so it's 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 the world that I live in. So it's the world that I write about. The fabric of your DNA, doing the kind of work that you do. Yeah, so exactly. So I mean, if if you're, I always say the best writing comes when you write what you know. Uh, so I mean, I live here in Washington D.C. I, I I walk back and forth in the world of politics when I'm really writing that's going to be reflected in what I write. So I have no problem with other writers doing that as well. Now, I know people are not reading what I'm, what my, my writing about the Black Panther to find out current political news. But in the world that we live in, you cannot write about that world without writing about the political things that are going on in it. So there's no, and to me, it's, it's a bit disingenuous to try to ignore it, to try to pretend like it doesn't exist. You want to create a world that people recognize. You want to create a world that people can immerse themselves in. And these days, that includes politics. I just want to see like uh, a run or at least a comic book issue of T'Challa just putting Donald Trump in his place. Can somebody give that to me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I I wanted to kind of transition to some other work that you're doing. You're also working with Lucasfilm on the story Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Finn's story. Can you share with us a little bit about that project? Right. Well, okay. So my my connection with Star Wars goes back a ways. Star Wars, uh, the very first Star Wars was the very first movie I ever saw in a movie theater. Uh, Star Wars A New Hope was my very first movie theater experience. Nice. So I've, I've, I've always been a Star Wars fan. I had the lunchbox. I had the curtains. I had the bed sheets. I had the whole deal. I, um, but like back in 2015... I had just finished my uh, most popular nonfiction book. Well, I, I also write uh, nonfiction history. So I just finished a book called The Invisibles, The Untold Story of African-American Slaves in the White House. Mm-hmm. So the book had just come out. It was doing pretty well. And I get a call from an editor at Lucasfilm. And she had read The Invisibles. Wow. And she had liked it. And so she was like, have you ever thought about writing Star Wars? And I was like, well, you know, of course, I've been a huge Star Wars fan my entire life, and I would love to do it. She's like, well, have you ever written fiction before? And I said, well, you know, I've 
been a huge fan of Star Wars and has been a Star Wars fan my entire life, not ever admitting that I'd never written fiction before. Uh-huh. So she was like, wow. well, we, we have this project coming up called that we, we need somebody to retell Star Wars, The Force Awakens from Finn's point of view. Mm. And we need someone to go into a little bit of the background about Finn that wasn't told in the movie. So, because, you know, when Star Wars The Force Awakens begins, it begins with Finn wanting to leave the First Order. Right. Never explains why. So they needed a little bit of background that brings people up to the point where The Force Awakens begins. And they had done this in a couple of books here and there, but never in one place. So they asked me if I'd be interested in putting together a history for Finn and then retelling The Force Awakens from his point of view. And I I remember I was actually at a journalism conference at LSU in Baton Rouge when they called me. And I mean, as as and as as most people know, writing is an intensive uh, process. So I Mm -hmm. just finished The Invisibles. And I actually had told my wife when I finished The Invisibles that I would not write another book for two years because I had worked on The Invisibles for seven years. So I was like, my family needs a break. And then Lucasfilm calls and says, well, you know, we want you to write Finn's story. And I I originally told them, well, you know, I, I did promise my wife that I would wait for two years before I wrote another book. But let me call her and check. Mm-hmm. So I called my wife. That's like five minutes later. I said, honey, I know I promised not to write anything else for two years, but Lucasfilm just called and they want me to write Finn's story. I, I told them that I had to check with you first, but if you want me to say no, I'll say no. And then the phone goes quiet for a few minutes. And then she's like, you dummy, call them back. <laughs> so I called them back and quickly agreed to do it. So uh, and it, 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 it turned out great. It gave me another reason to see uh, Force Awakens about 10 more times. That is amazing. I love that story. And it feels like it seems like you're like the historian for these comic book characters, these uh, these fictionalized characters. Yeah, I actually have arguments with my historian friends because I tell them, I, I tell people that with both T'Challa and Finn, I'm writing fictional history. Well, that's a bit of an oxymoron. If it's history, it's got to be true, so it can't be fictional history. So we're trying to come up with a new word for fictional history. But no, really, I, I'm still just writing the same history I was writing with the, uh, the with the Invisibles and with my first book, which is called Black Men Built the Capitol, Discovering African-American History in and Around Washington, D.C. So I write history just with T'Challa and Finn. I'm writing fictional history instead of the real life history of what happened. So, yeah, I, I, I teasingly tell people these days that I'm T'Challa's biographer. I mean, I, I love that. I feel like there should also be like an anthology of just like historical stories of all of these black superheroes oh, and that you can put that together. That's such a great idea. Cross your fingers. <laughs> well, you know, the black superhero is really finally getting his due with obviously Black Panther, Luke Cage. Right. We've got black Lightning and we can add Finn as well um, to this list from Star Wars. Are we there yet carving a new landscape for diverse stories or do we still have a long way to go? Well, I I do love the progress that we've made. Uh, You'll hear me say that we're there when we can say the same thing about the black female superhero. Amen. When when Shuri has her own movie and there's a Dora Mahali movie or TV show, that's when we'll know we're there. 
Um, yeah. I love the progress we made, we make. I love. I, I really regret the fact there's not going to be a season three of Luke Cage. I'm 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 watching Black Lightning right now. Um, I mean, I love seeing all the progress we're making with the diverse male superheroes. But it seems like we're still not quite there with full representation until we get the female, black female, females of color superheroes. Because, you know, more and more women are reading comic books. More and more women are going to these science fiction movies. When will we see representation for them as well? So that's once we get there, then I'll be willing to say that we've made progress. Right now, we're still trying to move forward. Yes. Amen to that. I mean, people really need to realize, and by people, I mean like the comic book industry, um, that you're you're right. You touched on something very important. There are more women that are buying comics now at a faster rate um, than anyone, actually, than than men. So they really need to look at, you know, the the demographic of who's reading their comics and create characters that reflect characters that look like them. So I think that that's really important. And I don't, I don't want to say that the major comic book, comic book companies aren't trying. I mean, we, you look at legends on, um, on, um, on, on television and they, they occasionally have uh, black female superhero characters. They they did Vixen on, on there for a while. And you look out on the market yeah. and you have Miss mm-hmm. Marvel out in the market and you, and you have, and you had Vixen in, in leading the justice league for a while. So, I mean, yeah. And you have the high profile that Storm has every now and then, um, but yeah. we can always do more. There's so the, once again with characters like the Panther, with characters of color, you can tell stories that would seem sort of cheesy with other characters. You can tell stories about the Klan. You can tell stories about racism. You can tell stories about sexism with these characters that you can't. You just can't tell with the ordinary characters that we've used in the past. So I think this is this is. Why give up these stories? It's hard to tell. It would be hard to tell that story of the clan that Don McGregor did with Black Panther with another with a, with a character who isn't black. It's, it would be hard to tell the 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 stories that you can tell with John Stewart, uh, the Green Lantern stories you can tell with John Stewart with Hal Jordan. I mean, you can do it, but it doesn't have that same impact. The same goes with having females of color as your protagonist in these superhero stories. It opens the door to new stories that haven't been told yet. I mean, this is, this is why I love what they're doing with Miss Marvel. And I love that how she's showing up in the comic books and she's showing up on the cartoon series because they're able to tell stories that they haven't been able to tell in, in the past. This is why I'm really looking forward to Devil Dinosaur and Moon Girl, the cartoon that's being yeah. uh, executive produced by Lawrence Fishburne, because they're going to be able to tell stories that you can't normally get. The Black Girl Nerds podcast will be back in just a moment. Care Of is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. Care Of has a fun online quiz that asks you about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices. And it only takes five minutes to find out what vitamins and supplements you specifically need. And by five minutes, I really mean it. I took the quiz myself and it asked me direct, succinct, easy questions about what my health needs were in order to find out what my best lifestyle choices should be for taking these vitamins. Your vitamins get delivered right to your door. So again, you get the super convenience of having it sent to you and not having to go out to the store to shop for these vitamins. 
And every portion of the sale goes to the Good Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need of valuable prenatal vitamins. You can track your progress in the Care of app and earn rewards when you remember to take your vitamins. Pretty cool, right? So check out Care of. At Black Girl Nerds, we are offering a discount of 25% off of your first month of the personalized Care of vitamins. Visit TakeCareOf.com and enter the code NERDS. That's TakeCareOf.com, enter NERDS, and you get 25% off. That's TakeCareOf.com, enter the promo code NERDS, you get 25% off of your first month of Care of vitamins. TakeCareOf.com, enter the code NERDS, get 25% off, and take care of yourself. I love Lanella Lafayette. She is amazing. Um, and then we also have our girl, Riri Williams, Ironheart. Right, so, you got it. <laughs> yeah, really excited. And, and I, I hope I have my fingers crossed that even though Luke Cage season three is not going to be happening, that maybe they can create a Daughters of the Dragon series and have Misty Knight and Colleen Wing kicking some butt because those books are amazing and seeing these two women of color being leads in their own show would just be profound and and so many people would crave and love to see that kind of representation so that's my hope for Netflix exactly I'm right there Uh, with you (laughs) so last question is there a comic book superhero that hasn't been adapted yet on the big screen or the small screen that you would like to write about? Oh, that's a good question. I, I have I, I have been already pitching DC on a like a Black Lightning novel. Both both of my parents were teachers. So that's a unique space that we really haven't seen on television, a superhero teacher. Um, so I think that 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 would be great. Uh, I you know I would I if if it was up to me the next Green Lantern movie would be about Jon Stewart. That's just... Hello. I'm surprised there hasn't been one yet, given the fact that there was a great animated series, Justice League, where he was featured on there. And yet there's there's kids that don't know any other Green Lantern other than Jon exactly. Stewart. Well, he, my kids would be two of them. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm showing them the Green Lantern movie the other night with Ryan Reynolds. They were like, why is Deadpool yeah. Green Lantern? How who is that? Like, he, yeah. he, he doesn't make a good John Stewart. I'm like, okay, guys, he isn't playing John Stewart. I'm like, well, who is he playing? So, yeah, yeah I think with John, you have like John Stewart who would be a great. I there was rumors earlier that there was going to be a new Spawn series, a new Spawn movie, and I would love to see Spawn right. redone with actual real CGI. Yeah, I think um, Will Smith was attached to that project. And at one point, I heard Jamie Foxx was attached to it. So. No, Jamie Foxx. Actually, you're right. It's Jamie Foxx that is attached to that so project. I, I would love to see that. I mean, there, there yeah. are so uh, the the Martha Washington series that I that I read a long yeah. time ago would be an awesome yeah. movie. I mean, there talk about political. <laughs> there are so many great characters out there that you could take and do great things with on the screen. Um, yeah, but I mean, here here's the thing. It always starts with the story. You have to, one of the things that scares me the most right now is that people will just take any story with a black actor and throw it up on screen and say, this is a black superhero story without actually thinking about what the story is going to be about. So we have to be sure that we're telling good stories or we may backslide to the area where we have to prove again 
that characters of color can lead a movie. Right. Right. Yeah. It, I mean, it really does narrow down to a good story because if the story's not there, then it doesn't matter who the players exactly. are. Uh, Got to have to have something that people are going to relate to and want to, you know, be interested and entertained by. So it definitely makes sense. Well, Jesse, it was really a pleasure speaking with you and geeking out with you over comics. I mean, I could talk about comics all day you long. You and me both. So I, I'm right there with you. <laughs> Sounds like you have the best job in the world. So um, all the best to you. And thank you for taking the time to talk no, to thank us. Thank you. And like I said, be sure to follow me on my website, which is www.jessiejholland.com. Uh, I'll be coming out with some new announcements sometime in the next few months. So uh, keep, keep, stay tuned. Excellent. Thanks, Jesse. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Uh, Actress Sanaa Lathan doesn't really need an introduction, but if you haven't seen much of her work, you can see her in films like The Best Man, The Best Men Holiday, Love and Basketball, Brown Sugar, Alien vs. Predator, The Family That Prays, Contagion, and so many more. Right now on Netflix that's currently streaming is her film Napoli Ever After, and she sits down to talk to us about her role. Take a listen. Okay, excellent. All right, we are recording. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. Really appreciate it. <laughs> so I, I want to dive right in. I First of all, I love Napoli Ever After. It was cathartic. It was refreshing. It, it's something that really um, invoked a spirit in me that I didn't realize I had when it came to my own personal hair journey. And, and, and I wanted to know how much of Violet in this film is you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I kind of grew up with, you know what? Sorry, I'm getting my lips, I'm, I'm getting makeup done, and he was doing my lips, so I was going to sound like this. <laughs> no <laughs> worries. Um, I grew up, I, I, I'm very different from Violet. You know, I always say with characters, you you bring you can't not bring yourself, obviously, because it's you playing them, but you also kind of invoke. I always feel like I'm invoking the spirit of the character. Um, I didn't have her upbringing. I kind of grew up with, you know, parents who were artists, you know, damn near hippies in the 70s. And um, my mother always, you know, if anything, I was the one who was like, Mommy, you know, put your clothes on. Like she was like, she was just like, be yourself. You're beautiful the way you are where, you know, you're Afro puff. So I had the opposite in, in that kind of way of an upbringing. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I was just very fortunate that I, you know, grew up with people who really kind of, you know, sent the message over and over that, um, I don't necessarily need to conform. I think myself and obviously society, you know, influenced me just like it influences everybody. Um, uh, there are pictures that I found of me when I was five, and I had a, me and my cousin had towels on our head, and that was like mm. our version of like our long European hair. You know what I mean? Yeah. So of yep. course we were influenced, and I just, love Violet and I love this story because I call it a you know a new fairy tale for the modern woman because if you think about fairy tales 
they're, you know, so European-based, and they're really speaking, they're not speaking to us. You know, you think about Cinderella or Rapunzel or Keeping Beauty, none of those those heroines look like us. And, right. you know, what does that do to a little girl who is reading, reading these or being read to? What does that tell us about, um, you know, what we look like? And right. and what does that do to somebody's self-esteem and self-worth? And that's just a, a microcosm of what all of society, advertising, the media, is is kind of inundating us with over and over again in this culture. And so I love the fact that this was about saying, you know what, I am beautiful in my blackness. My you know her hair is a metaphor for that. I am beautiful, mm. I am worthy, and I am owning I'm owning it. Um, so many things. So I was, you know, very moved by this story as well. <laughs> That's beautiful. And you kind of touched a little bit about this in your answer here, but I'm curious to know, have you experienced a hair journey that's had a significant impact on your life the way it did Violet in this movie? Well, definitely Violet's hair journey because it's, it's Sanaa going through it. So if you think about it, like mm. – and it was kind of the perfect time timing for me because, um, you know, just, you know, everybody knows um, what it's like. This is universal for women, but for black women, it's a whole another discussion. And, you know, me being an actress in this business where I was told coming up that, you know, I, you know, needed to wear the, the weaves and the wigs and it should be straight. And, you know, mm. my generation of actresses and before me, we were basically told in in so many ways that we couldn't work with our natural hair. You know what I mean? I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe Sam Breer, but... (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's so beautiful to see, you know, these these actresses coming up now wearing, you know, all kind of incarnations of their natural hair now. It's, it's, It's really wonderful to see that reflected in in Hollywood finally but um yeah I mean after shaving my head it was it was cathartic for me as well I was um I was kind of in denial for a while when I was working on the script I was like oh well you know I don't really have to do it it's 21st century we find a really uh great bald cap (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's a lot of money, and it'll look really real. I even got examples from other movies. I was like, this one looks real. Let's, let's go. But then as I started kind of falling in love with her and really digging into her world, I realized I could not do it. And so it was terrifying. And um, Is that something you volunteered to do, was cutting your hair, or was that uh Well, they were suggesting they were it. They, they were suggesting it, and I was like, you do it. You do it with me. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> but um, they were suggesting it, but, you know, I knew ultimately it would be my decision. And um, I finally made the decision, and it was a, it was a really intense day. Uh, everybody on set was nervous as well because we knew it was one take. So the whole camera department, is, you know, hair and makeup, um, everybody was kind of like, you know, had butterflies for this one scene. And... Because, um, you know, you had one take. You can't go mm-hmm. back because <laughs> it was right. all my hair. Um, <laughs> and it was really beautiful because the, the scene actually took about 10 minutes. 
to do. And we shot the whole 10 minutes, and we, I think four minutes of it is in the film. Um, but everybody kind of rushed into the bathroom when, when um, actually I called cut because I was done. But um, and they were crying, and it was just really a beautiful moment on set. It's like everybody was in support, and everybody kind of went on the journey with me. Um, and yeah, it has been an interesting year. I had people who said to me, you know, you hold a lot, people hold energy in their hair, and they hold memories in their hair, and when you cut your hair, it's like, you know, you you get a new life, you get a new mm. chance. So it's definitely been um, uh, a, a, a growth-filled, positive um, year. It's it, it's it's been amazing what you know the metaphor of hair in my life has done for my life you know right right especially for us black women do you, do you believe black women cutting their hair is a form of activism I think so definitely I think it is I mean especially in this culture where there's just been history of us kind of you know, um, being brainwashed to believe that it's not as beautiful or it's not as, um, quote-unquote, good. Um, And it's really about self-worth and Mm -hmm. saying, you know, I am worthy just the way I am and my kinky hair is, is powerful and beautiful and, you know, just as. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's making a statement. Exactly. It's a statement. Definitely it's making a statement. It's unfortunate that it has to be a statement, but you know, I'm I'm it is a statement these days. Right. 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 I know that you have a native son that's coming up that also stars Kiki Lane who's gonna be um pairing in as Bill Street could talk. Yeah. Did the two of you so many scenes together and what's been your experience working on set? You know, I did not film any scenes with Kiki. I'm I'm was really sad about that, but um, I did with Ashton Sanders, who is oh, just divine. He's just a wonderful talent, a wonderful person. Um, um, and I'm just I'm excited to see the movie because you know when you come in and you play a role a supporting role you know sometimes you're kind of you don't get to you know experience the other parts of the movie so for me it'll be just as much a surprise as everybody else but I was you know a huge fan of the book and uh, such an important story and kind of tragic in a way that this story is so relevant in in. 2018 America, 2018 America, you know, the fact that we're still dealing with the same issues. Right. Um, so I'm definitely looking forward to it. It was a beautiful um, experience for me. Um, yeah. And, and speaking of Beale Street, too, Stefan James, who I did Shots Fired with, who. Right, yeah. Is such a fine actor. He's in that as well. So I'm looking forward to that. Big fan of Barry Jenkins. Oh yeah, it's it's a beautiful film. I had a chance to see it at TIFF. Oh, you did. Um, yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous film. Uh, so yeah, you're you're gonna love it if you haven't seen it yet. Um, um, and and speaking of adaptations, uh, another project that you're working on that was recently just announced, you're set to star in 
Jordan Peele's adaptation of Rod Serling's Twilight, Twilight Zone. Yeah. Yes. Um, so yes. us here at Black Girl Nerds, we're like big sci-fi geeks, so it's very exciting Oh, my for God, us. I love it. <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny because I'm a huge fan. First of all, I was a huge fan of Twilight Zone. I haven't seen all of them, but, you know, I re- there was a couple that I just will never forget. They were so always so chilling, and they always had a kind of moral twist to them, and um, you know, then I became a really uh, huge fan of Black Mirror, and you know, obviously, Black Mirror is is heavily influenced by Twilight Zone, right? Right. So, mm-hmm. um, I love the idea of Jordan Peele doing the reboot, and he's the narrator. He'll be the Rod Serling of it, right. of each yeah. episode, and each episode is almost like its own little movie. So each episode will have a different story, a different cast, and um, I already shot my episode, and I. I'm not allowed. Yeah, you're in the pilot, right? Away. What'd you say? <laughs> you're in the pilot. You're in the first episode, right? I'm in the first episode. Who knows how they're gonna lay them out? It could be the first. You know what I mean? It's definitely the first one that was shot. Okay. Finished it, and um, I don't know how they're gonna they're gonna lay out, but it could be first. But um, gotcha. It is. It's deep. Um, it's it's chilling. It has all those Twilight Zone kind of edge of your seat chilling kind of moments, but it's also um, deals with some contemporary issues that we're dealing with today. And I just that's all I can say. And it's great. And I'm I'm starring with um, Damson Idris, um, who's a, a fine young actor, <laughs> and we had a great time. And uh, yeah, so I'm excited. Will we will we see sci-fi or more horror from your your filmed episodes? It's both. Well, not horror. It's more like sci-fi with thriller um, tendencies. Gerard McMurray directed it, who's fabulous. Um, so yeah, I'm so excited. I'm excited. We are too. <laughs> awesome. Well, last last question because I know we got to wrap up. What's been the most remarkable thing about working on Napoli Ever After? Remarkable. Um, well, I just we had a blast doing it. There was a lot of love on set. Like every, it was a labor of love for everybody um, that kind of joined on. We got such amazing people to work with us on it. Um, so the actual experience of it was. You know, I think you kind of feel it when you watch the movie. It was really special experience, um, kind of just lots of laughter and fun while we were shooting it. Um, but I would say just hearing the response, you know, my what I, I, I want to entertain, but I also want to kind of do thought-provoking and inspiring work as well. And I love that as so many women have voice that they're moved by this movie um you know that's one of the great things about social media is that you do get to hear how people are responding and i just i'm loving it i'm loving that it's kind of starting a a movement of you know women doing the big chop and i love it Mm -hmm. which is a metaphor for like you know kind of stepping into their own power i think that's just awesome and um i feel honored to have you know been a part of it well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us and really excited about what is in store for you in the future. And please, we'd love to ta- chat with you again when uh, Twilight Zone and um, Native Sun comes up. 
Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Broadnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.